Hello, world. Welcome to another week of Golf Subpar. Colt Nost and Drew Stoltz. Surprise, surprise, Sleazy. Mr. DeChambeau raises the trophy. Yeah, all we've been doing, I feel like the golf world has been talking about Bryson DeChambeau. And then this week, I don't know how you felt, and I was never out there, but like I've never been happier that I'm not trying to play golf for a living because this dude has turned it into a video game right now. Like it is, It's weird what he's doing to the golf ball. Yeah, I said it um, on our SiriusXM show. I said it in here. You actually picked him in our, in our caddy bet. I picked him in the pick three. I thought he could turn Detroit Golf Club into a pitch and putt by cutting over all the corners. And if his wedge game and putter was on, I didn't think there was anybody that can beat him. And once in my life, I was right. Yeah, good, nice nice call there. And uh, his putter was right because he led the field in driving, total driving, and total putting. Yeah, he So had some, that's a good combo. He had some unbelievable shots. I, I said Sunday, the shot he hit on number four out of the left rough, he had 281 yards, couldn't see the ball out of the rough, over trees, second shot into a par five thinking he's just going to pitch it out there with a wedge, lay up, have another yeah, wedge in. like a normal human. Takes some kind of metal wood out and hits it right over the top of the trees, just short, a step short of the front edge, two-putt, birdie. Next of all, I'm like, uh, this this game's not fair anymore. It's a problem. There's one guy on the planet that can do that. How about two of the first three holes out there, par fours, 399, 400, whatever, and he's driving it up. He's literally pitching it onto the greens. Yeah. He waited for the green to clear on Sunday from like 400 or mm-hmm. something like that. I was like, it's this a- is, what are, we, what are we, he actually broke the shot link. This week, because if a shot gets, if you're hitting a shot, like within, I think it's 30 yards of the green, they assume that that was your, like, that's not your approach shot, mm-hmm. right? Like you missed the fairway and chipped out or whatever. And so he was ranking like dead last in strokes gained approach because he was hitting it too close to the greens yep. that it wasn't registering as an approach, which yep. that's different. First player ever in the shot link area era to lead strokes gained off the tee and strokes gained putting. Good uh, combination. Not a bad two to have in your back pocket. Also... Another record broken. Longest average driving distance for the week since they started keeping track 40 years ago, and he beat it by 10 yards. Previously, it was Tiger Woods in 2005 at 341. Okay, and by the way, that was at the that was at the Open Championship at St. Andrews. At St. Andrews, where it's like concrete, you get one downwind. I mean, you can send it. He was doing it at Detroit. There wasn't really any wind. There was a little bit of bounce. He averaged 351 for the week. Yeah, that's average nice. 351, dude. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's a little different, uh, a little different ball game. But um, was the 14th, the par five, the one day he, hit, he almost hit 200 mile an hour ball speed, 199. It flew 341, and it went 377, and he hit a nine iron from 200 yards into the par five. I was like, what, what are we doing here? What, yeah, what, what's where do we go from here? I, 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 pl- I have a pretty good memory, and I played there last year, and I can remember what I did on most holes. I remember that hole specifically. One day I laid up with a four iron, and another day I laid up with a five iron. It was all, I always laid up. Laying up. And this yeah. dude hits nine iron. Nine. Under the green and makes eagle the first day. And I'm like, oh, my God. Go get him. JT Poston's uh, caddy, Aaron Fleener, texts me after that. And he goes, dude, uh, I just watched him hit nine iron into this hole. We hit three wood. And JT Poston is not short. Yeah. He hits it That's fine. He's different it level. Far. So, look, man, it's. I think the tour is probably very excited that he's taking this week off. Just go away so we don't have to talk about you for a week. And maybe we can also win a golf What tournament. do you think the players are thinking, like, Real, I don't, I don't, none of them really come out and said it, but like, are they at this point? All right, it's been four weeks now. We're pretty, we're still young into this like quote unquote experiment, but it's working and it's working big time on courses that in theory aren't built for what he yeah. does. Are they at this point like, oh my God, dude, like if he plays well, like I ain't getting him. I don't think it's panic mode yet, but it's like, um, if, if this play continues where he's seven straight top tens right now with this, with this win last week. If this continues and this goes into major championship season and he is up there every single week, it might be like we might have to, you know, kind of figure out what we're doing here. Maybe change our ways a little bit or 
we can't compete with this guy. There's no way you can compete with it if he keeps driving it like this. And like, what's the alternative? All right, I'm gonna go gain 50 pounds in the off season and work out five hours a day and eat five thousand calories. I mean, I'll calories. do it. Like nobody, nobody's gonna yeah. do that or, or at least be successful. I'm shocked that it. I'm not shocked that it's working. I'm shocked that it's working this quickly and like this successfully, like winning and top tening every week. You would think there'd be some feeling out process yeah. with this, but there ain't. Well, I'll tell you what. Our next guest, he's got an opinion about this and a lot of other things. One of the most, I would say, controversial figures in the game of golf. Loves to say what's on his mind, and I love sitting down and talking to him. Brandel Chambly. Yeah, this is a fun interview, as you said. Controversial, which I love what Brandel does. There's so much cliche shit in golf. It's the same thing over and over, and especially analysts that are former players, I think, are scared to say bad things about players because they don't want to affect their relationship. Brandel doesn't care, and he talks about this in this interview and how he kind of toes that line, but dude, I think he's great for the game. And there, say what you want about Brandel. You can love him or hate him. Nobody researches and studies more. No one in the game of golf than this guy. And that comes up in the interview too. And he's really good at using big words that I don't know what they mean. I went home and immediately read a thesaurus and yeah. I was like, I hate myself. I gotta, I gotta get better. Uh, but he, he is awesome to talk to. I, I love it. He stirs the pot and I think golf needs that makes it a little more exciting. Yeah. People, whether you love him or hate him, you, when he's talking, like you're tuning in cause you're ready to jump his ass for something that he says that you don't disagree with. Or you're like, I love this guy. He stirs the pot and I like to hear what he says, but whatever he says, he truly believes it. Mm -hmm. It's not like a, Skip Bayless, who just says stupid shit for the sake of saying it and for getting attention. I don't think Brandel does that at all. He will back up every single thing that he says with I, stats. I like it. But before we get to Brandel Shambly, you have a word from our official sponsor. Yes, I do. Support for Subpar is brought to you by our official sponsor, Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. They obsess over the technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. That's why Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer, the Manscaped engineering team spent 18 months perfecting the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created and just released the new and improved Lawn Mower 3.0. Listen, fellas, no woman wants to come downstairs and be surprised by the fescue at Carnoustie, okay? They need the tightly manicured fairways of Augusta National. And when I tell you this is premium, I mean premium. The battery will last up to 90 minutes so you can take a longer shave. And also, let me tell you, if you need 90 minutes to shave your balls, then you are way behind the game and you need Manscaped right now. If you can watch over half of the movie Titanic in the time that it takes to shave your balls, then this is the product for you. I'm telling you right now, trim that junk of yours, get 20% off and free shipping with the code subpar at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code subpar at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code subpar. All right, we are very excited to welcome on our next guest, a man you are all very familiar with. He is Golf Channel super analyst and owner of the best head of hair in television, <laughs> I would argue, Colt, in television, Mr. Brandel Chambly. Well, it's definitely show. way better than mine. I know yeah, that. you have no say here. You have no say. The silver fox. <laughs> but welcome to the show, my it's, friend. It's nice to be back in Scottsdale. It's great to be back uh, with you guys. Or, uh, you know, I, I, I've enjoyed listening to your show. I feel like I've been a part of it, but... Uh, Really enjoy listening to you guys and your other uh, platforms, but as well as this one. Well, thank Appreciate you so much. That. But let's start with that, by the way. You did. You just moved back to Scottsdale. I did. You know, uh, Golf Channel, uh, I think everybody in the golf world pretty much knows now, is uh, moving up to Connecticut. I used to commute back and forth to Orlando from uh, from Scottsdale. But once I got married to Bailey, um, you know, I, she was working at Golf Channel. I moved over there full time. But uh, I, I found out, you know, since they're moving to Connecticut, I get to commute to work. 
Um, from the time I got that news to getting back here to Scottsdale wouldn't have been about a month. So uh, we're very, very excited to get back here. Bailey got her master's degree from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism. Uh, she's, you know, she's a golf nut even more than I am. So she loves to hike, loves everything about Arizona. So it's, uh, it's great being back here. Love to have another golfer in town here. Yeah, um, another good player, great. Another dude that's going to take. All, that's what we need is another scratcher, yep. better player around. Yeah, stuff. yeah, it's really hard to find guys that can uh, that can beat you. One of my favorite <laughs> stories, really, is the year that uh, Ogilvy won the U.S. Open at Wingfoot. By the way, we yes. head back to Wingfoot, but he won it in 2006, and he got beat in the club championship at Whisper Rock mm-hmm. that year. Couldn't win his club championship. My good friend, Open. Jim Strickland, yep. who we've actually both played in the Desert Marlin with. We've yep. each actually both won with him. There's one common denominator there, yep. Jimmy Strickland. But that yeah, is true. Strick clipped him in. That was back when it was a 36-hole stroke play. It wasn't like some fluke 18 right. holes, the guy gets hot. Right. It was head-to-head, looking right. in the eye, 36 holes, right. add him up. Well, well listen, hard. Strickland was my partner in the straight down for three or four years. Yeah. And, I mean, I knew he was pretty good, but we got over there, and after – nine holes i thought what in the world why are you not on tour <laughs> yeah and by the way shorter than me mm-hmm. i mean i'm five nine on a good day uh oh yeah and he's five seven you post him up all day and he hits it, it and hits it I, I guarantee he flies it close to 300 yards uh hell of a player uh, uh, I didn't know that was Strickland that beat him. That was yep. Strickland that beat him. Makes the most sense. competitive human being. He makes Patrick Reed look like he's unsure if he likes competition. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to kill you in everything. <laughs> he's a fun guy, though. He is, he is. Yeah. But welcome to Scottsdale. Welcome back to Scottsdale. Yeah, thank you very much. Time. But let's talk about you. Three-time All-American at the University of Texas. PGA Tour winner. Golf Channel analyst, obviously. I want to start at the University of Texas. First <laughs> off, I heard from the moment you stepped on campus, you weren't cocky you were confident <laughs> but a lot of people wasn't quite sure how you would do when you when you got to, when you got to school but you showed up first round of qualifying 69 never looked back wow you did your research oh, good question we're, we're professionals right we uh, yeah you know i um you know i, I don't know i uh, I, pro- I wasn't the number one recruit in the country that's for sure there were a couple others ahead of me and it's funny how fate works uh, they were recruiting a play by, player by the name of Tommy Moore who ultimately went to OSU Tommy Moore is since passed away great guy and a hell of a player um and i guess you know i'm fortunate to some extent he decided not to go to ut because when he did they then recruited me and ut was a small team they didn't have 20 25 30 players they had eight players you know uh and i was i was you know i got there and you know i i had some good rounds early on and uh yeah look in college you are cocky i mean most everybody because by the time you get to college you've won almost every tournament you play in as you did I wasn't anywhere near as good as you in college, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, we had a lot of cocky people on that team and, and we had the number one team in the nation. Uh, you know, my junior year, we, we finished the year number one in the nation. Uh, we had two players that made first team all American should have had three. There was another player on the team by the name of Paul Thomas, but they had never had three players from the same team make first team all American. And ultimately they're like, oh, we can't put three players. There's only eight or nine players that yeah. make first team all American. We can't put three players on there, but Paul should have made it. Uh, but it was a, it was a hell of a lot of fun. We had a lot of great guys, um, and uh, very much enjoyed those years. Did you go there because you couldn't get an offer from TC or SMU? <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, I would That's have gone we to went, SMU and played golf. I wanted to go to SMU, but the Eric Dickerson scandal mm-hmm. in the late oh, there was no money 70s, left. It was they, they had a no. They 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 canceled the golf program. They oh, death penalty. Death penalty, so dude. yeah, a death penalty. So I think it was started in because Payne would have graduated Stewart seventy nine, and I wanted obviously to 
you know, to go there. And 80 was the first year. I don't think they had golf from 80 to, I don't know, pick your year. But um, unfortunately, I couldn't go to SMU. And TCU did have a heck of a program. Um, but but um, but once I went to UT, I uh, went on a recruiting trip, yep. spent the weekend there, went out with the guys, came home. I was like, you know, I was looking at several other schools, but that was it. Game over for me. Yeah. Um, and I, I loved every minute in Austin. Well, you mentioned your old roommate, Paul Thomas. Yes. And I don't know – Never met Paul Thomas. Don't know much about him. I heard he was a hell of a player, but I heard he was even a better guy. <laughs> he can was you, the can best. Can you share a couple stories <laughs> stories with us? I, I can. You know, he was uh, the derelict of all derelicts. Um, he was six foot five. He was James Bond, basically. He was six foot five. He was a brilliant fella. Didn't have to study. Made A's. He 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 could not understand why I'd be in there studying. You know, one night I remember in particular, he came in. He was like, "What are you doing?" I said, yeah, I'm grinding, you know, and he was like, listen, the test is going to be this, it's going to be this, it's going to be this, that's it, that's all you need to know, those three things, I was like, how the hell do you think it's going to be those three things only, he was like, it just is, and, you know, it was those three things, you know, he was absolutely brilliant, good looking, um, and, uh, you know, he had, he had a hell of a lot of fun there, you know, he was uh, a big party, a, a heck of a player, he tied for NCAAs in 1983, tied for NCAAs, lost in a playoff. But he was the wildest person I ever knew. Uh, laughed, partied, drank. Um, you know, he was the kind of guy who'd walk into a bar, and the prettiest woman in that bar would run to him. I get it. And uh, right, just like I you, Colt. It. It's it didn't not matter. as easy as it looks. You know, dude. It's, it's a lot of work. You know, <laughs> I can see why you guys not are tired all the time. Up to be, dude. Right, I get it. I get it. You guys can sympathize with him. I couldn't. Um, but he was. Um, he was, uh, he was an animal. Look, I, I'll tell you this story because I'm, I'm sure you've heard something about it. But uh, years ago when I was, uh, uh, I think, a rookie on the PGA Tour, uh, I came home from a, an event, and my answering machine, and no cell phones in, my answering machine was filled up. And it was, you know, one after another of, hey, I, you know, we went to high school together. I, I just heard your name mentioned on Oprah or Sally Jesse Raphael or Phil Donahue, it just made the rounds, all these talk shows, of his wedding got voted the worst wedding in the history of weddings. <laughs> and and he had been called onto these talk shows to talk about how bad his wedding was. He was meant to marry this girl named Kathy Kane. And, you know, uh, I did not go down to the bachelor party. He got married in Houston. I was in Austin. Finals, I was taking finals the day of his bachelor party. So the next morning I got up, he was getting married that night at 7. I drove from Austin down to Houston. I had to go pick up my tuxedo. And when I went to get my tuxedo, the, the fellow handed me a complimentary bottle of cognac. And he said, you know, every, every tuxedo comes with this. And I thought, well, of course it does. It falls in charge of mm-hmm. things. And I go to the house where we're meant to be. And, and Paul and all the other groomsmen, best men, they were out playing golf. And they came in and they were, they were schnockered. They'd been out all night, and then they went straight to play golf. And I'm not sure they quit drinking in there. And he said, you know, put your tuxedo on. We're going to go to a party before we go to the wedding. Smart. And, Smart. and I was the only sober person, so I said, and I had an enormous car. So I said, all right, I'll drive. I said, you guys get in. All of us get our tuxedos, and we go to a, uh, a gentleman's establishment, mm-hmm. let's say. Yes. And, and, and Paul had been in this town for a week. And he walked in, and, and again, you'd have thought he was James Bond. 
every single female in there knew him by name. He knew them by name. They, they, they were best friends. They were talking it up. And he's getting married at, let's say, seven, okay? And I'm driving. And I'm, I'm you know, I, I look at him at about 6.15, and I said, uh, Paul, we got to go. And, uh, you know, the church was like 15 minutes away. And he goes, yeah, 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 just a, just a couple more, just a couple more. <laughs> so now it's like 6.30. And I said, Paul, we, we got to go. And he was like, yeah, just, just one more drink as a bachelor, you know. And so, you know, he has one other drink as a bachelor, and it was a big drink. And I was like, good gracious, you know. Now, mind you, he's an enormous guy, 240, 6'5". Uh, and I'm, you know, I wasn't keeping track. I thought he could handle himself pay attention to his own sobriety but now it's 6 40 we're just coming out of this place and uh, we're getting in the car and one of the groomsmen decided he fell in love and and you know one of them wanted to be his date and uh and so and so i i get in the car and i'm like no uh uh-uh and there were i don't even know how many groomsmen there were in this car but there were a lot and they were like no 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 you know she's 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 my date i was like this is a black tie wedding Anyway, uh, we, we don't quite make it on time. I mean, we get there like a few minutes late, and as we pull in, the, it, was a, it was meant to be a Catholic wedding. The priest and his soon-to-be or meant-to-be bride come out with the bride's father, and they, they are livid, livid. And the priest goes right up to Paul, and, uh, and he says, Have you been drinking? And Paul said, Oh, I've had a couple to take the edge off, you know. <laughs> And, uh, I mean, he'd been drinking nonstop for 24 hours. And uh, so he was a very persuasive fellow, charming as hell, Paula was. And he somehow talked his priest into agreeing with the ceremonies. Do it. But Kathy has just never stopped, you know, giving him what for. She is so mad at him. Anyway, we all, we all get in there. The priest agrees to do it. We all get in there. We get lined up. And I'm, you know, I'm one of the groomsmen. And I'm standing there in a sort of a, a V pattern. Right, right in front, and the priest has got Paul by the arm, and they're standing right in front of me. And and you know, here comes Kathy down the aisle, and you know she's still angry, and you can hear her, you know, barking at him uh, under her breath. She's she's so mad at him, and rightfully so. Anyway, so they come up and they join arms, <clears throat> and the and the priest says a few things, and then they go kneel at the altar, and you hear the priest say, "And the Lord brought these two together." And that, and the next thing you hear is, "Wah!" And, and, and he, he blows chow all over the altar. Projectile vomits. He stands up, and it just covers her. Oh my god! Co- oh, covers her in vomit. He stands up. Well, before that, as I'm standing behind Paul, before the vomit even starts, I'm standing behind Paul, and I see the priest has got him by the arm, and Paul is wobbling like left to right. And I look at one of the groomsmen who was a doctor, and I said, uh, no way he makes it through this. I mean, this is going to take an hour. He's not making it. And, oh, he'll make it. He'll be fine. And uh, so anyway, he blows chow. He throws up all of her, and then he stands up, and then he sort of teeters around, and then he falls like a felled tree. Okay? And he hit that. Well, I mean, it was boom. <laughs> and I thought he was dead. And, and, and so he's laying there. <clears throat> And his eyes went back in his head. And again, uh, one of the groomsmen was the doctor, and he leans over, and he goes, he goes we, we got to get this guy to a hospital. So the, but the second he started 
blowing chow. It got, I mean, deathly quiet in this church. And a guy in the back, <clears throat> you could hear a guy in the back, you know, it's just, I mean, quiet. He goes, he's blowing! And it just echoes through all the church, right? So anyway, um, we, we pick him up, and he's, he's literally he's just dead weight. And we got to get him to a hospital. So we, you know, march him out, throw him in my car, and I'm driving to Memorial Hospital, I believe it was on. Anyway, so I, I no, before we get there, we found one of those emergency places, like a dock in the box mm-hmm. place, and we just pull in there. And they, you know, we, we drag him in, and they're like, well, he's just drunk, you know, he just needs to sleep it off. So we drag him back out, and again, the groomsman who's a doctor, he goes, no, 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 we got to get him to a hospital. So we take him to a hospital. And, uh, you know, the, after we get him in there for a bit and they take him back, um, a doctor comes out and he goes, um, is his next, you know, are his parents here? And I said, actually, they're not. They're not here. And they, they didn't really like her, mm-hmm. so they didn't want to come over for the wedding, which is just shocking to me, but they didn't. So I said, well, I, I, would, I suppose I'm the closest thing to Ken that he has. And they said, well, we need, to, we need to talk to you. And I said, really? And they said, yeah, you need to come back here. So I get back there, and they're like, <clears throat> there's a good chance he's going to die. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, we've never seen a blood alcohol level this high. And, and you know, it, it was some ridiculous rate. Anyway, they, they had him on, uh, you know, they're pumping his stomach and all these machines to do what they needed to do. And, and I, you know, up to that point, I thought, you know, this is typical Paul. Mm-hmm. He didn't die, but the, the next morning when he wakes up, his first words were, um, "Did I do it? Am, am I married?" And, and I'm like, That's a hell of a question." And, and, I, Paul. and I said, "Paul, you didn't make it two minutes through the ceremony. His eyes were all black. His face was all black because he'd hit the floor so hard." Um, it, it, anyway, uh, believe it or not, they did. They obviously they did not get married, and they tried one other time to get married, and and that one fell through. Not as, <clears throat> not as catastrophically is that what one a legend. i mean um, i don't know if you can top that well that the podcast is over because that'll be we'll never get a better story <laughs> than that right there <laughs> that's I, a hell of a precedent to set going into your marriage i did hear his blood alcohol was somewhere around 0.44 yeah it was you know it, it was you know as i you know it's a little foggy because it was a long time ago yeah. but the way it was described to me was that the doctor said you know th- at this blood alcohol level you're drunk at this you're obscenely drunk at this you're catatonic at this you're dead and he's like right there wow and, that is nuts and uh did i do it did i do it <laughs> no dude you're still I'm single not, uh, probably will no, be for a long time no oh, you know and i don't know you know paul and i still keep in touch he he was rookie of the year actually the mm-hmm. very next year on the european tour and he his father was a very very famous fellow um and traveled in the in the peter alice sean connery world and you know, I, I went over there once to play golf, and, and that, to me, is one of the funnier stories, if you want to hear that one, uh, involving Paul. We'll have to get to that one, because we, we got to actually I, talk. I do want to hear <laughs> it, <laughs> but we have like, one of the bit. great brains of golf here. <laughs> I feel like we should take golf, but I could just hear these Paul stories all day. I love this man. I, I heard where he is. We need to get him in studio, by the way. Yeah. But after well, yeah, stories- I, so... I feel like, all right, so we got Texas. Colt mentioned you're a three-time All-American in Texas. You come on, you get on the PJ Tour. You won on the PJ Tour. I think you had six years consecutively where you were inside the top 100 on the money list. Like, by all criteria, a very, very good run on the PJ Tour as a professional golfer and an amateur golfer as well. Do you feel like you don't get enough credit 
as a, as a player because I feel like so many times you'll make a comment and they'll be like, "Hey, you only won one time." Like, what do yeah. you know? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and is, is that fair? Uh, well, no. I mean, I look. Uh, people use it to to criticize me in an effort to invalidate my opinion, um, and I I find it comical personally. Um, one, I, I don't I don't care what people want to or how people want to categorize my career. I would, um, by almost any standards, call what I did in golf extraordinary. Um, not by Tiger Woods standards, not by Jack Nicklaus, not by but. Just to make it to the PGA Tour, you have to be an extraordinary golfer by professional golfer standards. There's 10,000 people trying to play professional golf. So you have to be very, very good to get on the PGA Tour. And then to stay on the PGA Tour for any period of time, you have to be, you have to be disciplined. You have to be very good. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy with my career. And I, um, you know, it, it doesn't bother me when people try to. I, 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 the only thing I, I really think when people try to criticize my career um, to make less valid my comments is that you just haven't done your homework and you don't really understand what you're talking about. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I got to 57th in the world. Um, <clears throat> now, you know, in a, in a world where there's 10,000 people trying to play professional golf, it, you choose me any, choose any profession in the world and find me the 57th best at it in the world, whether it's the legal world, um, you know, any profession, I don't care what it is. Um, surgery. Um, they're extraordinary what they did. Absolutely extraordinary. By any standard, they're extraordinary. Um, so I, I find it somewhat comical when people try to criticize my career. Having said that, I mean, you know, was I a great professional golfer? Not, not by any stretch of the imagination, but I was an extraordinary golfer, and there's a nuanced difference there. Yeah, I feel like it's such a bullshit thing. We talked. We had Charles Barkley in here a handful of weeks ago. He gets the same thing in the NBA, right? Like, oh, you didn't win a ring. You can't have this conversation. It's like, dude, what do I got it? You know what I mean? I'm one of the 50 best players of all time. You had an incredible career on the PGA Tour. It's like, you can't comment on my golf swing because you didn't win a major. I just found that yeah. to be such horseshit. But, but yet, you know, they, you know, and I've said many, many times how much I think about Butch Harmon's teaching. But Butch Harmon, Hank Haney, David Ledbetter, Sean Foley, Chris Go you, you, you take the players or the, the teachers whose job it is to talk most fervently about the golf swing to the best players in the world, and none of them had a career on the PGA Tour. The closest you can come is Butch Harmon. And Butch Harmon, again, Butch Harmon had more rounds in the 80s on the PGA Tour than he had rounds in the 60s on the PGA Tour. And some people will say that he won. He, you know, he won, he won an event. The BC Open, one round, shot 68, and it was canceled after one round. And they, you know, they, you know, they gave him the trophy. My point is not to denigrate Butch Harmon as a player. Um, he was clearly a, a good player, clearly a good player. Um, but it does not invalidate the fact that uh, he knows what he's talking about when it comes to the golf swing. When you look at most great um, coaches or analysts, um, they came from a place where they struggled competitively, so they were forced to dig in deep to understand the nuances of the game. And so I think that impacts and informs their ability to communicate their ideas just a little bit better. Uh, they've had to work much, much harder for it. Of course, there are exceptions. Uh, Romo comes to mind. He was an extraordinary football player, and he's an extraordinary analyst. Um, but uh, it doesn't take very long to find people that were great coaches and great analysts who, uh, who struggled somewhat um, reaching the higher echelons of their sport. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, <clears throat> it's exactly right. And I, I like that you say, like, you know, they try to take your career 
to kind of bring down your opinions a little bit. And you had a great quote that I, I read that you said, you said, you know, cause you do a lot of homework. You study more than anybody I've ever seen. And everyone that you work with that I ask, they say no one works harder than Brandel Chambly has legal pads full of notes and all this backs up everything he says. And you said, quote, I wasn't at the Boston tea party, but I can tell you everything about it. <laughs> and I was like, you know, that's a good point. I mean, just because you didn't win major championships doesn't mean you can't talk and know what these guys are going through. Well, again, I mean, you have to dig deep. You know, um, I, um, I love to study, and I, and I say all the time that I do not uh, study to back up my opinions. I study to discover my opinions. Uh, I, I'm, you know, if, if, if I have a, a whole day where I'm not technically on the air, I am probably researching most of that day. You know, I'll break away to go do something outdoors, but I am, I'm, 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 I'm always looking for ideas that will, I think, help our audience understand the game a little bit better, and I hope entertain them somewhat. Um, you know, I, I was on, on the computer all day long trying to find things that I just had never occurred to me. Um, you know, I, I'll give you one this morning. I, I tweeted it today because I, I could not believe it. Um, <clears throat> ben Hogan missed the cut in the 1938 U.S. Open. The next missed cut he had was the 1957 Masters. Holy now, that's shit. 226 events that he went without missing a cut. And yet Tiger has the record at 142. And the question is why? Um, well, the record-keeping from the PGA Tour was a little foggy back then. And, you know, he did have a DQ in there and a WD. Um along the way but the fact that we you know we talk ad nauseum about tiger woods streak of 142 and we never really even bring up the fact that ben hogan by pga tour record standards he only missed five cuts in his entire career on the tour can i can i ask you this like why did you even start to look into that (laughs) well because i'm constantly asked is is tiger woods the greatest player ever and so i i'm always looking at another way to come full circle on that debate. Uh, you know, so Tiger Woods has a 22% win percentage right now. He's about to turn 44. And people will, you know, and I've been guilty of this. You know, you, you start to look at his win percentage and you, you're like, that's it, game over. He won by the most shots. He has the highest win percentage. But, again, when you look at, <clears throat> you know, Jack Nicklaus's win percentage, if you look at it, is 12%. But it got... It got uh, watered down because of post-50 golf. But if you look at what his win percentage was when he was 44 years of age, it was 16%, so 6% difference. And that sounds like a lot. But not really when you start to look at who his competition was versus who Tiger's was. Tiger's three biggest competitors were Phil, Ernie, and VJ. Now, Phil's win percentage was 7%. Ernie's was 3 and VJ's was 5 So you put that together, that's a 5% win percentage of the three biggest players that he faced. Nicholas faced Palmer at a 10% win percentage, Casper at a 9% win percentage, and then you start to go player who had a 6% win percentage, Trevino, Watson. You add all that up, and he had five or six players who had a win percentage that far exceeded the win percentage of Tiger's three biggest competitors. So Tiger did not have the competition that Jack had, just didn't have it. Did not ever face as dominant of players, as strong of players, uh, both in terms of win percentage and in numbers that Jack had. So again, I think the gap gets a little narrower there. But and then could you? Uh, I'm sorry. But then I was just going to say. But then once you start looking at Hogan, 
Hogan then comes into the argument in a much, much bigger way. I mean, the idea that only majors defines who the greatest players are is, is, is a ridiculous argument. You know, uh, Hogan only won nine majors. He only played in 58. Jack played in 164. Tiger played in 84. You know, who's going to win more majors? The guy who plays in the most. But Hogan was, you know, I think handicapped, obviously because of the injury and because, let's just say, World War II interrupted things. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to always look at different ways to, to because that's a debate that's never going to end until, until Tiger ends his career. We're never going to stop debating who was the best player. And as I go in, I said it one time in an interview, I was talking to a fellow, I was just about to go on the air, and he said, what's the hardest thing about your job? And I said, the hardest thing about my job is trying to say the same thing every day in a different way. I'm about to go on the air, and I did the math, and this was five, six years ago. I said, I'm about to go on the air and do my 5,000th Tiger Woods breakdown. And it, I mean, I hate saying the same thing twice. Hate it. Do it, but I, I rage against it. So I'm always looking for a different way to say something. Well, A, that's incredible that you have all those stats. Because yeah. I don't think any other human in the world could rattle that off off the top of their head. B, I want to play devil's advocate here. For What do you say to the people that would say, like, all right, you're representing Jack Nicklaus's biggest rivals and their win percentage versus Tiger Woods' biggest rivals and their win percentage? What would you say to the guy that says, like, yeah, the fields were deeper. When t- I, granted, there was a handful of guys that won at a bigger clip during Jack's era, but maybe there's more guys spread out that are going to win one two percent that uh, that couldn't have possibly won in the Nicholas era with those guys. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair point, but I think it gets watered down when you dig a little deeper because all you can do is be a product of your own generation. So, in other words, if you if you separate yourself from your generation. All right, you've dealt with the advantages and the disadvantages of that generation, and everybody there is a product of that generation. That's why I think that you only the only really good way to compare one athlete from one era and an athlete from another era is how dominant they were within their era. Because within that era, they are a product and playing against people who were a product. So if it's, if it's harder to separate yourself, well, you are more extraordinary if you do. Um, so, you know, I, I, I understand that argument. I've, I've even made that argument a time or two. Um, but I, but I think the best way to, and again, it's, it's, there is no right answer here mm-hmm. and that's why they're fun. Who should be in the hall of yeah. fame and why should they be in the hall of fame? Who are the greatest players? I've heard people say that it's ridiculous to compare errors. Perhaps it is, but that doesn't mean it's not fun. Yeah. You can still do it. Right. This is my Jordan LeBron. I mean, that's on every talk show of sports across exactly. the world right and, now. And and all, there's no right answer. And, and, and pe- people sometimes get upset because when you say somebody is the best, you're demoting somebody's general to Colonel. And it's not, no, I'm not doing that at all. I'm, I'm trying to highlight the strengths of all these players. And by debating who was the best, we bring those players full front. You know, I, nobody has benefited more from Tiger's career than Jack Nicklaus. Nobody. Nobody. Because we talk about Jack Nicklaus like he is still playing. And rightfully so. I mean, not only is he arguably the greatest player of all time, he is one of the greatest gentlemen who ever played the game. One of the most appropriate people. Um, in terms of how they dealt with the media requests and the people around the game of golf. And nobody handled themselves with more class. So these are the people that we should laud and talk about and, and keep their, their career alive to whatever extent we can. That was, that's incredible. I mean, I think by after the show, Sleaze and I should have to do a test on all those numbers. <laughs> I got Producer him. Mark, make up a few I questions. I got them locked. And, uh, Here's we'll the things that are going to be on the afterwards. test. I'm like Paul. Yeah, you're like Paul. I'm exactly. exactly like Paul. You Except got it. Shorter and uglier. But I talked to your buddy Frank Nabilo over at the Golf Channel, and I said, give me something to describe 
Randall Chambly, and he would say that you are misinterpreted. Do you agree with that? Well, that's, uh, yeah, I, I do. I, I, you know, I, um, personally, when I played the tour, you and I didn't overlap, although I played my last tour event. I know. Did okay. you beat him? I don't know. I don't, Damn, I can't I, remember. I, I will right, tell you one thing I remember for that. I played terrible. I was, got a oh, spot him, in man. Pebble. Oh, we both missed the cut. We got a spot right, in Pebble, tied. 2008. That's right. We played together and I hit it terrible all week and we're finishing on number 18 at Spyglass and I finally flushed one. And he goes, ladies and gentlemen, that's called the club face. <laughs> <laughs> that's what Brandon said to me. First time you met him. Go, first first time off, who's him? this asshole I'm playing <laughs> with right here? <laughs> I don't know. I felt like he was a fun-loving guy. Um, oh, he great. can take some but, shit. Uh, don't worry I, about I, it. I do remember that was your last that was, tour event. Yeah, that was the, uh, believe it or not, I, I, I drove to that event with my three kids, just me and my three kids. And I had two very young kids then. And my oldest was, let's do the math here, 12. So he'd have been... Uh, 11 and I you know I went up I found a nanny to take care of my younger two for two days and my older one came out with me he played Pebble Beach with me a few holes we were playing so I went up just to you know one Pebble Beach is my favorite place in the world to just bring my kids up there and and I was grateful for a spot but you know you and I uh, I'll never forget that I know exactly who I played the first tour event I ever played with I played 1983 Colonial I got paired with uh, Mike Donald Jim Thorpe those are the first two people I played with, and you're the last person. I played. Wow, what a book! Wow. So That's a from 1983 nice to 2008, there. there's 25 Jim years. Cult. Yeah, um, but yeah, I, I feel Incredible. like it. I, you know, when I played the tour, I uh, I I love people. I enjoy people. I uh, I'm I'm you know I I enjoy laughing and joking. I I try to defer to other people's opinions. Uh, when I played the game, I listened and I enjoyed that. I was on the advisory committee, but I would never say that I was a controversial person. I certainly don't think I was opinionated. I, I I certainly enjoyed good conversation, and I wasn't afraid to speak. But um, <clears throat> and I, you know, people love to say that I'm a tiger critic. I I, I feel like I'm Tiger's biggest fan. See, I, that's what I was going to say. I was like, you you do say some things about him that some people don't like, but you also rave about him at the same time. I, I think uh, you know I, I, I you know I I think 500 years from now they'll be talking about Tiger Woods the way we talk about Shakespeare. You know, I mean you. You just can't, you can't sum the guy up. You can't. Um, you know, I, I, I started in TV. I started Golf Channel in 2004. So from the time I started until present, but basically from 2004, straight away when I started working at Golf Channel, Tiger Woods was changing his golf swing. Now you think about that. Mm -hmm. In 2000, he played the greatest golf that's ever been played. 2001, same thing. 2002, pretty similar. Beginning in 2003, he started changing his golf swing, as we find out now. So from the moment I sat in a chair, I was being asked, why is Tiger Woods changing his golf swing? So you think about that. I mean, that would be like Michael Jordan, 1998, deciding to change the way he shoots free throws or plays the game. Uh, you know, the, the, the dream of every athlete is to dominate and be consistent. Nobody had been more dominant than Tiger. Nobody had been more consistent than Tiger. And he abandoned that. That made no sense to me. So people thought that I was not a Tiger fan just because I was being asked constantly, why is he changing his golf swing? Why did he do that? Why isn't he hitting it as good as he did in 2000 and 2001? So constantly, you know, every two minutes, someone's asking me a question, and I thought, well, you need to have a good answer. And the better answer you have, the more bulletproof an answer you have, um, 
the more riled up people get. Yeah, but I don't understand how anyone can sit there and say, oh, yeah, leaving Butch Harmon and changing golf swing was a really good idea. Like, how <laughs> yeah, the hell you, you, weren't, you, weren't winning, you weren't winning enough or buy enough with that swing. You should rebuild that. Well, here's, here's where it does get a little foggy, though, because his win percentage with Hank Haney was higher. So, so here you are sitting there on the stage, and, you know, I've sat with analysts before who came up and said, you know, Tiger's not as good. And you're like, well, I hear you. He didn't win by 15. He didn't win four majors in a row, but his, his winning percentage is higher. But all things being equal, experience should make you a better player when you still haven't had some physiological decline, which shouldn't really happen in golf until, I don't know, 32, 33, 34. Um, but, you know, so misinterpreted, I think, from the aspect that, uh, um, you know, I feel like I am a player's advocate. I, you know, players get mad at me because I will sometimes criticize their team. Um, and I do that after a lot of research um, because I feel like the most dangerous place on the PGA Tour is the driving range. Um, more careers die there than are salvaged there. And we mostly just talk about the best players who are having a good run. We don't talk about the ones that no longer have a chance to play golf because they were ruined by others' ideas. So having been the player, I can remember it clear as day. 1983, I was one of the best players in the world as an amateur. I wasn't, you got to number one as an amateur, okay? I wasn't there, I got ranked fourth. Weak okay? fields, weak Yeah, fields. right, right. There was yeah, nobody. Yeah, I saw who was on your <laughs> was Walker Cup me, team. He was beating me, Brandler, there was right. nobody out there. Well, his Walker Cup team had Dustin Johnson, Billy Horschel, Ricky Fowler, Webb Simpson, Trip Keeney. I mean, Keep going. Your Chris, supposed to be good. Chris Kirk. Yep. I mean, it Jamie was it w- Jamie Lovemark. Mm-hmm. I mean, it arguably the greatest Walker Cup team ever, and you guys won. And you were playing against Ricky, uh, Roy McIlroy, and the other team, um, along with others. But uh, I wasn't that good, but I was one of the best. And I remember standing on the range, and I was in Austin, which was a mecca for teachers. And they just all they stood behind me, and they all wanted to talk to me about my golf swing and change it. And look, I listened to them. I was curious, um, and they were well intentioned. They weren't. They didn't have malicious intent, but to the degree that I changed my golf swing, I, I became somewhat impoverished as a player. Uh, I never again, even all the years I played on tour, hit it as high as I did when I was in college. I certainly didn't sniff hitting it as far as I did in college. You know, I mean, I was. I, I once got to 49th in driving distance on the PGA Tour. So. You know, at my best, I was not short, mm-hmm. but I was one of the longest in college. Um, and and that's the reason I was so good. I mean, I, you know, you were yeah. good because you nobody could hit it straighter than you. Uh, but I feel like I'm a, an advocate for the players. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I, I wouldn't think that many players would think that. Is that the hardest part about your job is like on the one hand, hey, here you are on, on TV. Give us some unique perspective. Give us an original thought. Don't say the same cliche crap that everyone else is saying. But on this other hand, don't cross the line and don't criticize <laughs> Tiger Woods because then people are going to come for your throat. Like there's the, the, yeah. it's so hard to toe that line. It is. But, I, you know, I, I've asked all the time about, you know, do you get upset when players get upset? I'm like, no, I think my job is incompatible with, with being friends with tour players. It's not my job to be their friends. It's my job to analyze them. Um, and, and honestly, I, I don't want to get to know them. There's enough people that work at Golf Channel and in the TV business that can speak for the players. There's enough of them. Their voice is very well represented. I feel like my job is to be, because if I get to know them, I may like them or may not like them. 
And I don't want to like or not like them. I want to feel indifferent about them so that I, when I go on the air, that I'm speaking from a place of information, from a place of, of, of Objective. equanimity. And that I, because I, look, I, I've, I've joke all the time, Rory makes my job difficult. Because how in the world could you not love Rory McIlroy? I mean, he's the most thoughtful, brilliant, honest, engaging superstar you'll ever come across. So, you know, when, when, when Rory struggles in opening rounds of majors or when he says things that are, I, I think, uh, personally, I think he'll, he might walk back about his comments about the Olympics. You know, when I'm asked to talk about those things in a critical way, the fact that I know I like Rory puts a governor on my comments. And it's like, you know, I try to put aside the fact that Rory is a great guy, and I just wanted to speak directly to these events. So it's better, at least from my perspective, if I really don't feel one way or another about the player. I, I, I do my best. I read their comments. I go online. I read what they say and to all their questions and answers and get a feel for who they are. So I want to... That kind of leads into this. I want to ask you quickly about this because, like, you echoed something that Gary McCord said. We had him on the show, and he's also said on the radio show and other places as well. But he says when it comes to social media, like, that's another thing that's changed from when you were playing to current day. Now there's a there's a platform for everybody with an opinion. They can get it all out there, and I want to make sure I get this right. But Gary McCord said you echoed it. He said a lot of network decision-making is based on social media. Social media tends to lean left, young, and negative. And so with that being said, like, well, do you pay attention to any of that? Or maybe he stole it from you. I don't know. Yeah. He stole it from you? Well, Damn it, Gary, he's stealing son of a bitch. Well, he's not stealing. <laughs> I mean, I, lo I love Gary. Gary and I are friends. Yeah. Um, but that data is easily found, okay? And it's it's not even debatable. But I said it on the air uh, to Rich Lerner, and he basically got apoplectic about it. Um, and I understand that. But if you find if you do the data, it's easy to find that data. It skews left, it skews negative, and it skews young. So this particular time when I was talking about that data, it was relevant to a conversation about digital minimalism, which is what Rory is reading, and it, in, it informs the way he prepares for events. He tries to stay off social media, he tries to stay off his phone. And I said, the reason I think it's important to understand the biases inherent on Twitter, and even the CEO of Twitter will admit to that. And it's not an opinion, it's, it's easily found in data. Uh, and, and to go even deeper on that, um, only 20% of the people really are on Twitter. Yeah. Okay. And of those, 10% of those produce 80% of the tweets. So when you think you're going to Twitter and thinking you're getting the overall feeling on an issue, you're not. You're getting a very small biased opinion on it. Uh, so um, I thought that it was pertinent to the discussion on Rory because – one, as an athlete, if you go on Twitter, you are, you're going to inherently, you're just going to be drawn more to negative comments. And if you're in golf, you're perceived to be politically right. Whether you are or not, people just assume you are. So given that Twitter skews left and skews young and uh, skews negative, it's a bad place to be if you're a professional golfer. You have to have some pretty thick skin. So you see people on there like Billy Horschel who navigates himself pretty nicely and uh, several other golfers do a pretty nice job on there, but by and large, if you go on there, you're going to get you're going to get some the most disgusting vitriol directed your your way. You're 100 percent right. Like yes. even for me, like I'm a nobody, but I go through there and people five guys in a row can say the nicest things about me within that one negative one. I'm like, 
that son of a bitch. Right. I'm, I'm coming at him. Like, <laughs> course, I'm going to respond course. to him. Right. Which is it's just human. what sucks about social media. Yeah, because, we all have a negative bias. Because I don't, I don't sit there and t- take the time to say thank you to the guys that say yeah, nice right, things about me. Right, because you feel like, and there's no reason, by the way, that you shouldn't acknowledge the nice things. Um, I, I have always said, and I try to live by this, but it's, it's, it's hard. But you should be able to be complimented and criticized and feel indifferent mm-hmm. to both. You shouldn't let either affect you because if you're in this business, and uh, Tariko said this to me, you know, the first year I was doing TV, it was 2003, I worked with Tariko, which is a, you know, a blessing. There's nobody better than that guy. And he said something along the line of, look, if you do your job right, half the people will like you and half the people will hate you. Um, that's not to say that there's not, there's not a benefit from criticism. Uh, you know, everybody, everybody needs humility. Everybody needs, you know, every, there is, there, if, if you read enough criticism, there, 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 is, there is a thread in there of correction, right? You should never be above criticism, but you shouldn't let it get right to you, you know? Um, so it's just good to keep, you know, at least a constant check on where are my comments coming from. Yeah. And also on Twitter, I can't, I can't play that game. I'm not going to get on Twitter and, and, and insult people. I can't do it, and I always, I have always said that that uh, that Twitter is like a party at my house. You can come in and disagree with me all you want, but if you start breaking dishes, you got to go, and uh, that's why they make a block button. That's that's very well said, you know. But uh, back to that, how difficult it is being in this position now. We had Charles Barkley on, and he said when he went into TV, obviously he lost one of his best friends, mm-hmm. Michael Jordan, because of some comments. Have you ever lost a friendship because of anything you've ever said on air? Well. You know, um, when I when I played the PGA Tour, I would have said the people that I enjoyed the most were Colin Montgomery and Frank Navalo. So I would not describe, you know, I, I thought it was a gift getting to work with Frank. Um, but I wouldn't describe us as great friends. Um, you know, we're not dinner companions. Uh, we have a very professional relationship, no longer because he works at CBS, but... I felt fortunate to work with him. I didn't agree with all, you know, he and I didn't agree a lot, but I, I could not wait to hear what he had to say because one, I think he's incredibly bright and two, he's as passionate about research as I am, but he just looks in other areas. So he would bring in an opinion that I either hadn't thought of or never came across, you know, and I remember in particular, in 2013, when Tiger Woods made the drop on the 15th hole on Friday at the Masters, I, you know, the second I saw it, I knew it didn't look right. And I pushed to run it, you know, that night, but all of the information wasn't quite clear. So in the, in the middle of the night, it didn't, it sort of blew up. I was on the air Saturday morning, I believe around 7 or 7.30. So I started that morning our shows. Frank wasn't scheduled to come in till noon. Okay, he wasn't going to be on the show till noon. So I was on that show straight from 7:30 to noon, talking almost exclusively about that drop, that issue, the larger impact of what it would mean if he plays, if he doesn't play, and every other thing you can think about with uh, rotating guests in and out, from Nick Faldo to Noda Begay to Justin Leonard, you name it, Trevor Immelman, in they came, and. When Frank came in and sat down and he started talking, I remember thinking on the air, hadn't thought of that. Good point. 
Uh, and I often did that with Frank. But so, you know, our friendship was better when we played golf than it was when we, when we worked together. Um, having said that, you know, once I got, um, once I got into TV, the people that I, you know, I went into TV when I was 40, um, roughly. And by then, most of the, my peers had sort of already left the tour. There were a few. Tom Lehman was still out there. Andrew McGee was still playing a bit. Willie Wood kind of a little bit. Mark Brooks still a little bit. Uh, Brian Henninger a little bit. But they were kind of on their way out. And, you know, my friendships with them never, ever suffered. Um, never. I mean, I, I, I love those guys now, all of them. Um, you know, they're still marvelous friends of mine. But, you know, I, I, I think there's guys that I would – I feel like if Tiger were sitting right there, and I, I feel like I'd, I'd really like him. I really do. I don't know that because I look at his friends, and they're the nicest people in the world. I mean, Nota Begay, there's not a nicer human being alive than Nota Begay, not a sharper one. Um, John Cook, uh, Steve Stricker, uh, you, you find me three nicer people than that. Mark O'Meara, these are his buddies. It's like, how can Tiger Woods be anything but a fun guy to be around? I feel like I'd like Tiger. Um, but I, I'm quite happy not to know him. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I, I got to do my job. It's probably better for your job, but you, you bring up Tiger Woods, you know, you had your back and forth with him or the, the comments that were made about what you said. And then you had Brooks Kepka, who there were some things that, that caused a <laughs> big stir too. Like, I got to give it to you. When you go at somebody, you go at the top dude on the, on the totem pole, you're, you're, you're tugging on Superman's cape. Does, does golf channel support you throughout all of this? Like in terms of like, Hey, dude. Maybe don't go. Maybe don't say anything controversial about the top guys. Maybe pick number twenty-two or whatever. Are they always behind you? Well, mostly we're talking about those players. You know, if if they're superstars, we're talking about them. If we do a you know a, a two-hour show, I mean, we start the top of every show with whoever the best players are. So you talk about every single issue involving those players. The the Kepka comments, and again, this is to your point, uh, Colt, about being drawn to the negative comments. I'd done nothing but laud Brooks Kepka from 2014 U.S. Open at Pinehurst to the Ryder Cup in 2016. And all the way through that, you can go through there and find video of me saying, before he did what he did, this guy's a cage lion. When he gets out, he's going to rip this tour to shreds. Those comments, I said them all week at the Ryder Cup of 2016. At the Masters last year, I was asked by Rich Lerner. I'm sorry, the year before. I was asked by Rich. Uh, does he have a best mind on tour? He's the strongest mind on tour. Assuming because he'd won, had such a good run in the major championships at that point, I think he'd won three or two in a row, um, that he had the best mind in the game. And look, we, we have such an urgency to bestow originality on whatever's current or bestow unprecedented greatness on whatever's current. We're, Recency bias. We're, we're all guilty of that. And I, you know, the way I remember it is I said no. You know, I, I mean – as long as Tiger Woods is in the game, nobody gets that spot. Um, and, and by the way, the argument that I made was he'd won on very similar golf courses that allowed you to drive it. It was more of a weightlifting contest than it was a chess match. Um, wide open, uh, fairways with very little penalty. Um, I'd like, I said at the time, I'd like to see how he plays when there's thicker rough, more strategy involved, and the game is more about... The game is meant to be more cognitive than it is meant to be more physical. Um, and look, that Masters, people are like, he finished second, he proved it wrong. I'm like, okay, if that's the opinion you want to take. But if you listen to what I said, I said, look, he's, he's made physiological changes that I think will affect his touch. He three-putted five times that week, and he lost. I, I would say his touch was affected. 
in my opinion. And I would say that Tiger Woods made the better decision off the 12th tee on Sunday than Brooks did. Again, my, my opinion is Tiger was better mentally. I would say that the week validated what I said. What he heard and probably what he read was Brandel says Brooks isn't strong mentally. Never what I said. If you make it to the tour, you're, yeah. you're unbelievably strong mentally. You're the most tenacious, dedicated, persistent, unbelievable athlete if you make it to the tour. Now, if you get to where he was, of course you're mentally strong. But Tiger Woods is another level. This is like comparing Cormac McCarthy to Shakespeare. Cormac McCarthy is an exceptional writer. Maybe the best there is in the world right now. But he's not Shakespeare because there is no other Shakespeare. Tiger Shakespeare. You know, Brooks may be Cormac McCarthy. Um, and, and so Brooks got mad at me, you know, and said whatever he said. I, I don't care. Um, again, I, I, I felt like I was just doing my job. I, I think Brooks is a bright guy. I enjoy his comments. They entertain me. Him throwing darts at my face on a board. I thought it was funny. It's good for you. It's, you know, it's, it's funny. It doesn't bother yeah. me one bit. When he posted a clown, I, I put a clown nose on my face and, and shot a picture back to him. That's the right way. I, I, look, I, I, I think he's bright. I enjoy him. I think golf is, is, is better off with him around. And, you know, he's a strong player with pretty strong opinions, as we're finding out. That's good for golf. Colt, what's your favorite Cormac McCarthy piece of literature just off the top of your head? Well, good news is we don't have time for that because <laughs> yeah, okay, we have to get right. to it. Well, that's such design. a long discussion. Yeah. We could debate that yeah. all day. But like I said, we could, we could talk with you all day about the game <laughs> we of golf. We could. I love ridiculous. this. This is great. Uh, for sure. But we always do this with every guest. Emergency 9, 9 fun questions to get to know you a little more. And our first one's always the same. And I'm going to let Sleaze start yeah, This is the first one. This is, this is given to every single guest right now. But I want to know, if a movie is... A movie is being made about the life of Brandel Chambly. Who do you want to play your role? Wow. Yeah, um, think this. Think hair. Gotta be good hair, dude. No, I mean, honestly, uh, you know, my wife and I talk about this. Uh, um, you know, I, my favorite actor is probably Denzel Washington, you know, so. You and Gary uh, Woodland are going to have to battle over him. Gary Woodland. <laughs> you know, <'cause> that's... Um, <laughs> um, you know I, I, don't, I don't know how you, how you get any better than Denzel Washington. Um, you know, have to he's, change his hair. He's 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 uh, he's incredible. Um, you know, um, Anthony Hopkins. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. You know, if uh, if you're a movie geek, you go to the last ten minutes of Amistad. Um, that's as good at acting as as has ever been put on a screen. In my you opinion. are a movie geek, aren't you? See, he goes way love, deeper yeah, than every other guest. Every guest, other guest, every is guest like, like, oh, someone that Brad Pitt <laughs> in Troy. Yeah. I'm Brad Pitt in deep. Troy. I'm super yoked, Brad Pitt. Um, but, you know, I, I, uh, I watch scenes of movies a lot, go back and just watch them uh, just for the, just to try to figure out how, how they were able to, the nuances of it. Again, just to go back to Anthony Hopkins in the last uh, 10 minutes of Amistad, um, you know, if you're not familiar with the case, but it was, it was before the Supreme Court, just the nuances of it. He, the way he taps the table, the way he stops and takes a drink of water, the way he, were, I mean, it's just incredible that, you know, acting you know, we owe so much to the arts, um, and, and, and good dialogue, great acting. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it definitely, uh, influences my life. You are an appreciator of the arts. Colt, who'd you have pegged for him? Cause we're, we're like, I can't if go ever... anything. I can't follow that. I can't go, <laughs> go ahead and give your super going, deep opinion. I was on. just going to go with one of his university of Texas alumni, alumni, Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> hey, that's a tremendous yeah, I mean, look. You, you have to take you, your shirt off. You lot. go to his scene in Wolf of Wall Street. Oh. Where he starts going, oh, mm-hmm. oh, oh, oh. Epic. now, now the way I understand it is that was improvised, but 
you know, I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio is off the charts as an actor too, off the charts. I have a good buddy of mine who's a very well connected in, in Hollywood. And when I go over to LA, he's, he's best friends with Jack Nicholson. So when I go over to LA, you know, I, you know, we'll go to dinner with Jack, we'll go play golf with Jack. And, and, and then all those people come around us mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, just just to hear them talk about Leonardo DiCaprio and his talent. I've heard directors will finish a scene, they'll stop and they'll turn to each other and go like, "Have you ever seen anything like that?" I mean, that's I mean you I mean, you know, just in in Revenant, you you yeah. you look at his work in the Revenant and and you think, "My God, what a talent he is." Um, but no, Matthew McConaughey, you know, he's a you know, I mean, to be that handsome. And to be that dadgum talented, I get it. Is uh, you know, it's it right up your alley. Yeah, you're gonna coat. need a lot of shirt. I, I put a lot <laughs> yeah. of thought into these, Brandel. I take my, I take this question very seriously. I had you pegged for a Richard Gear. Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a, I in like Chicago Richard Gere. specifically. In yeah, the, in the musical <laughs> rendition of I, Chicago. I uh, I'm a I'm a big Richard Gear fan. Okay. Um, you know, I uh, I like his work a lot. I think he's uh, he's talented. I, uh, you know, I, I just you know, my wife teases me all the time when I go get a haircut. She's like, you know, would you just grow it out the same length as Richard Gere? I'm like, well, <laughs> ah. you know, it's like I, I, you know, when you work in Florida, um, uh, you know, if I grow it that long, you know, it, 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 it puffs out, you know. You get you know, the like, Chia Pet look. Mm, right. I know it well. Like, like the carrot no. top or something, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it gets too thick. Well, if this movie's ever made, we own 10%. That's also <laughs> a running all right, number two. I hear you have, well, you just moved, so it's probably not up yet, but you have one picture of a golf hole in your house. <laughs> I mean, you do your homework. Yeah. Can you please explain to me what hole it is and why? <laughs> I just actually uh, put this picture up last night. Oh, it, good. It, it, uh, it's a picture of the eighth hole at Augusta National. Uh, I was uh, I was playing well at Augusta the only year I played, 1999. I was uh, had the lead after the first round and was, you know, okay positioned after round two. But I was warming up Saturday and – you know this. You guys both know this. So warming up, and I, I didn't miss a shot. You know, I was, you know, any shot. I, I mean, I was like, for an hour, I was Ben Hogan on the range. You know, it was just absolutely flushed it. Draws, highs, trajectory, everything I had, I had it. I was like, good God Almighty. But often you don't take that to the range, the course. And I went over and I just flushed the first shot exactly, and it just didn't stop. Wasn't missing a shot. You know, and I was two under par through seven holes, and I was two back, maybe one back, walking to eight tee. And, I, and it, it just hit me. I thought, nobody is going to beat me this week. It's like, I, I'm going to win the Masters. And this is Saturday. Maybe the earliest anybody's ever thought they were going to win a tournament. Um, Saturday, walking to AT, and I thought, I'm about to hit the longest drive on this hole. <laughs> and I'm going to, you know, I was like, I couldn't wait to hit that tee shot, you know. And, I mean, I smoked it, you know. Just, I mean, exactly where I wanted to hit it, you know. Just right at the right edge of that bunker, right out there. I could get there easily. And uh, I couldn't decide back then, you know, it was a one iron, uh, a zoom uh, was oh, what it was, yeah. a zoom or, uh, you know, a three wood. And I thought, well, I'll try to take a little off three wood. And I fat hooked it over in the trees, up welded, you know, and it took me two to get it away from this pine tree. And I, you know, made double bogey. And I remember walking off that green to the ninth team. I was like, you got to be the dumbest son of a bitch that ever lived <laughs> to allow that sort of energy to invade your body. And disrupt what you were doing, um, you know. And I just thought, no, I'm cl- I, without question, I'm the dumbest human being that's ever played golf. 
And, and I remember walking over, and I just had that existential debate as I was walking to nine. And I was so mad at myself. I was like, all right, regroup, whatever. But, you know, I, I wasn't the same player the rest of the day. And needless to say, uh, I was like, you know, I'm going to buy that eighth hole just to remind myself, not that I need any reminding, of just how big an idiot I am. That is hilarious. But, by the way, you definitely – you didn't look ahead the earliest. Slee's part of the first hole at the Mid-Am qualifier one year <laughs> oh, dude. and thought he was winning three back. I'm taking sponsors on the second Okay, you beat me there. The I was about to say, dumbest <laughs> guy. It took you Saturday to the Masters after leading the first round to think about winning the Masters. Dude. I'm writing victory speeches on the plane two tournaments after that. Okay. What am I going to say? All right. Win, all right. Thank you all right. for Number three. letting me off the hook. Good. All right. All right. Here we go. I know you're a big book guy, huge reader. If you were to write an autobiography, what would the title be? Uh Maybe he is, and he doesn't want to spoil it. Oh, yeah. Would Are you writing it? one? That could be the next question. Uh, I, well, and can we write the, the preface? What would the title be? Um, uh, gosh, I don't know. Uh, what would the title be? Um, the Silver Fox. It would, no. An autobiography? <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, it would be... You're a writer. I thought you might have had this in the works, I thought, maybe. Well, you know, I... I I, def- I have a second book going right now, and, and I'm, I have a third book going right now, simultaneously, second and third book. Uh, and I will write a book eventually about the time I've spent at the Golf Channel. I don't know if an autobiography would be appropriate, but uh, what would it be? Gosh, I don't know. Um, um, this is a tricky it, it question. This be... is the first, you're the only reader we've ever had on the show, mm-hmm. so this is the first time we've ever asked that question. Yeah. Half uh, our guests can't even read. Yeah, there's a, I'd say more what, than half. What would it be? It would be... Um, um, I'm not a hater, you know. Cause I'm pe- not a hater because people, pe- you know, I'll buy it. People, uh, what about you know, misinterpreted? Misinterpreted is not a bad one, you know. I, I'm interested why Frank thought I was misinterpreted um, because no doubt he'd have a deep opinion. But uh, um, <laughs> we'll talk about. But that I don't know. There. I'll get. I'll get back to you. <laughs> I'll right, tweet that out. That. I'll, when does this show air? Uh, Tuesday. Tuesday, and we own 10 percent of the autobiography. All right, so. Tuesday. I'll tweet out what I would name my autobiography to answer that question. Perfect. People right. will be ready for that. All right. I'll, All right. I'll name. All right. Number four. Do you still stick by this one quote you said about Tiger Woods? Yes. I before think. you say, it. yes, I know I would, what it is. What you're gonna you're going to ask me? Get him that he is the biggest underachiever. In pretty the close. Of go ahead. You're good. Shit. Go yeah, ahead. I would, but you didn't know you didn't get your own quote right. All right, go ahead. I would argue that he's got the least out of his talent of any player, maybe in history. That's right. Yeah, no, and I don't disagree with you. Yeah, n- just... not only do I stand by it. I mean, I, I, there's math involved in that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if you if you extrapolate from his win percentage when he decided to change his golf swing from '97 to when he started winning in '99, do the same thing in 2003, 2005, and then do the same thing yet again from 2010 to 2012, and you start to look at the majors that he would have won then. Uh, I can't think of another player in the world that you could have so definitively said left 10 majors minimum mm. on the table and left and left and left 20 to 30 uh, upwards of 30 events on the table. I cannot think of another player that you could definitively say that about. And again, it's this crazy. is why people that love to say that I'm a tiger hater. It's like, no, it's just You'll never get past finding him an enigma. Why would you change the golf swing that won the Masters by 12? Why would you change the golf swing that won the U.S. Open by 15? So, yes, that's, that's where those – but when you put that in headlines, mm-hmm. 
people were just like, well, that's the dumbest thing I ever said. It's like, yeah. listen, no, you just, I agree with you. Just I just read wanted it. to know if you yeah. still stood by uh, it. Yes, I do. Absolutely. Good. I like that. All right, Absolutely. next question. Why do you hate Tiger so much? <laughs> <laughs> that's good, Drew. Kidding, that's kidding. That's good. All right, good. here we go. Next question. This one's serious. Who is more likely to win a championship next? You on the Champions Tour or the Texas Longhorns in football? Oh, Texas Longhorns in football. Oh, wow. <laughs> no hesitation. I found out. win before then. I don't know. I found out very – very quickly last year, how hard the game was. Uh, not that I didn't know that, but uh, you know, to, to to play the game well, you you need to you need to work your ass off, and you need to have full time devotion to it. And you know, the most I can give to this game is a week here, or a week there. I tried my butt off last year to play, write, and do TV, and it left almost no time for anything else in my life. But uh, I'm going to keep playing. Uh, I had planned on playing six, seven, eight events this year. Um, obviously, the pandemic has interrupted a lot of a lot of different lives in different ways. But uh, but I still plan on playing. Um, there were, at least in my view, signs last year that uh, that I could do some things that were were pretty good. But I'm not going to go out there and scare Bernard Langer um, or uh, you know Ernie Els or Fred Couples. Um, but uh, but I'm, you know, I'm hopeful. I'd like to get in the hunt again. It'd be fun. A week here, a week there is all the yeah. Longhorns give you anyway. Ah, <laughs> 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 kidding, Brando. Kidding. By the way, yeah. S- SMU beat TCU last year. So <laughs> nice. Very nice. Yeah. Once a decade. Very all right. nice. All right, I'm going to give you three players that are not at their best right now. you got to buy stock in one of them for the next 10 years. All right. Jason Day, Ricky Fowler, Jordan Spieth. Uh, I'd go Spieth. Why? Yeah, I'd go Spieth. Uh, because I'm still, he's still young enough. Uh, he's still passionate enough. He's uninjured, and I think he is uh, um, philosophical enough to find his way free from this this downturn he's in. Um, I have said, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a big fan of all three of these players, but I have said, you, you know, eons ago that Jason Day, you know, you start to look at players that swing very fast who have short golf swings and they'll have short careers. And their 30s and 40s are going to be very tough for them. And that's proven to be true with Jason Day. Uh, Ricky Fowler is uh, an amazing talent, an amazing kid. Um, I guess he's not a kid anymore. I guess he's a man, a young man. Um, But when you're 57, soon to be 58, everybody seems to be a kid to you. But but I just think what Jordan Spieth has done is next-level stuff, you know, to – to have won the amount of majors, to proven that he can handle leads, to widen leads, to win wire to wire, um, you know his ability to to make putts, um, deal with distractions, deal with criticism, and handling it in an exceptional way he does. I mean, there's, I uh, you'd be hard pressed to find a bigger fan of Jordan Spieth than me. Fair enough, that's the man right there. All right, you're going on a mine's a little less philosophic. Uh, <laughs> if you were going on a ten hour road trip. Who would you rather have in the passenger seat? David Faraday, Gary McCord. <laughs> or you can just drive the, the car either into way a, it's into gonna a be river a, and just end it. Either way, it's gonna be a hell of a ride. <laughs> uh you know, like I'm I'm both of them are extraordinary people. I, I at one point I toyed with doing the, the fifty best things that happened to golf in the last fifty years. Prominent on that list would have been Gary McCord. Uh I think he's I think he was one of the best things that's happened to golf. And People, I think, really underestimate just how talented of a guy he was and how much of a genius he was. Um, he can talk about anything, but he is, he is also um, just a really nice guy. 
you know he you know he'll he'll listen he's he's done so many extraordinary things i mean the the all exempt tour is his idea um you know he brought a form of television this levity everybody tried to copy him um david faraday is extraordinary in his own right and i enjoy being around david but i've i've grown up and been good friends with uh, gary mccord so uh for for ages uh just just love gary you get That's no argument here. Awesome. Man. A lot less flatulence with McCord as opposed to Faraday. Yeah. From what I'm yeah, told. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah, a yeah. big deal you, in a 10-hour you, car You'll ride. get that with Faraday for sure. <laughs> you'll get that. All right, number eight. Brandel Chambly is the commissioner of the PGA Tour for a day. First thing you change. First thing I change. I change the ability to get an exemption having finished in the top 25 or top 50 career money. I think that's ridiculous. Mm, Never understood it. Uh, golf is meant to be about what you can do, not what you did. Uh, and the idea that players develop some sort of status and have a fallback of being able to use the top 50 on the money list or the top 25, they get two if they're in the top 25, is absurd to me. And I would, you know, look, you don't get to be an autocrat. you got to run that through a board. But if I had that power, I would get rid of it immediately. Um, I would also uh, I would also change the way tee times are created. The idea that uh, you're a rookie going off last mm. is is a disgusting idea in my in my opinion. Um, the tee times should be drawn out of a lottery. I understand that there should be some preference giving for stars for TV, but the first off tee times are an advantage over last off. And it wouldn't take long to draw out. And, and again, of course, there would be a discrepancy owing to established players playing first off versus last off. But you could devise a metric, I'm sure, that would prove what an advantage it is to play verse, first off Thursday, Friday, versus sure. the very Huge. last off groups. Mm -hmm. So I think all tee times should be pulled out of a lottery Okay, you can get paired with people within your status on the PGA Tour, but just because you're an established player doesn't mean you should get to go off at 6.45 and the other player, because they're not established, goes off at 9.45, which means they're going to play under with greens that are, that are the worst. They're going to be the most chopped up, mm -hmm. and the conditions are going to be the windiest because they're going to be mm -hmm. playing the latest in the afternoon when there is the least amount of people out there, the least attention from the marshals, the most beat-up greens, and the most uh, windy conditions on Thursday and Friday. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like there is inequity in, in both of those aspects. I like that. That's good. I never heard that, and that's a huge difference going off first off. I remember off. clear as day I made a putt on the, uh, on the 18th hole at Atlanta my second year on tour, I believe maybe my third year on tour. Money wasn't like what it is now. And I remember at that time, when you made $250,000, you got put into the first off tee times. Before that, I was last off. The next event that I was first off at was the Byron Nelson. I got to the Byron Nelson, and the greens were as smooth as his table. There was no wind, and there was nobody on the golf course. And I think I shot 68 or 67. But I remember walking off thinking, that is a two-shot difference. That's how easy, that's how much easier it is to get out there and play under prime conditions with no distractions and very little wind. Exactly right. That's a unique answer. I haven't heard that one. That's that's really, really sharp. All right, this last one, though, this is a thinker. So this oh, is, I'm this, sure it is. Put your cap on right now because I'm about to right. send you for a ride. All right, here we go. Get your brain ready. Out of your two Golf Channel colleagues, Mr. Aaron Oberholzer, Mr. Nota Begay, 
who endorses the bigger piece of shit golf cart? <laughs> <laughs> the T-less driver or the XE fucking 6'9 unchunkable wedge? Which one of those pieces of trash is worse? They're, they're both making a killing on those things. I tell you what, I have good fun with teasing both of them about it. Um, and when we get off air, I will tell you uh, a story uh, along those lines that I pray you guys won't share. But... Uh, uh, the Tealess driver does crack me up. Notably, I'm like, isn't that a three wood? I mean, whoever thought of call- <laughs> a matter of fact, the next time I do a show with Noda and I see someone tee off with a three wood on a par three, I'm going to, I'm going to say oh, yeah, dude, yeah. using a Tealess driver here. That's your club. Bro. Right. That's a Tealess driver. Otherwise known as a three wood, <laughs> yeah, by the way. It's unbelievable. Uh, no, I, I'd have to go with the Tealess driver on that. No disrespect, Noda. Yeah, yeah. Although those wedges sound promising. But really, we should do that. We should all like go play golf and invite Aaron Oberholzer out. Like, unbeknownst to Aaron, like go get all the wedges that he's – I don't know. He sells like every wedge in the world or he sure. promotes every wedge. Whatever all his garb yeah. is, right? It'd be worth spending the money on it and put it all in the bag and not tell him. We could do that. And just, uh, and just see how long it takes him to catch on. Oh. I tell Aaron's a heck of a nice guy. And – he he is. I've really enjoyed watching him grow on the golf course as a commentator. He's uh, he's good at what he does. Does a very good job and never chunks a wedge. So no, apparently XE apparently six, you. Five, I don't think four nine wedge. I, I don't. You know, you you give it Mark back there producing. He wouldn't chunk it either. Apparently, that's what it. You don't chunk them. Maybe top twenty strokes right. grinding around the green. Can't chunk that thing. The, the Can't XE chunk C nine. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant club. Randall, man, that was an absolute blast. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure, Drew uh, and Colt. Uh, Congratulations on the success of this show. You guys are great. And I really do enjoy listening to y'all. Y'all keep it uh, fresh and entertaining. Well, we appreciate your time, and we will definitely have you back on. Stop hating Tiger so much. Yeah, right. (laughs) All right. I'll give it a shot. All All right. All right. Well, that was Brandall Chambly. Slays, I had a blast talking to him. He is so smart. He is very smart, as it's very well known. When he's bringing up, like, philosophers and shit like that like brandle you got to bring it back you got to know what show you're on dog this ain't this ain't the place for philosophy but also just the stats that he can just rattle off off the top of his head he's like you look back in 1964 they won six percent of the like how do you memorize all this Mm -hmm. stuff that is a guy that just his desk has to just look like stacks of paper with stats and then a thesaurus i love that he's just sitting there and all of a sudden he just starts researching like this ben hogan ben hogan statistics versus tiger woods i'm like first of all why did you ever want to know that and what made you dive into it but he's fascinating I absolutely love it. By the way, one of the my favorite things he said, it was about the quote I asked him about, about how Tiger Woods is has underachieved more than anybody in the in the history of golf. Mm-hmm. And I love that, that he came out, because he, he got ridiculed for that. Sure. But he's 100% correct, in my opinion. Well, yeah, when you look at what Tiger was doing in the Butch Harmon era and the mm-hmm. clip he was winning at, and then he's like, oh, this isn't good enough. I don't like winning majors by 15. Let's go ahead and start over. Like the, the time that it took to get that new, next swing, where he then went and won at a very high clip too, but it's like, what if? What if he just didn't switch? What if it was good enough with Butch? And I don't know if that was a clash of egos or what, but like you could argue that it could be weird numbers. That, I mean, it's already weird numbers. It could be really weird numbers we're looking at. Yeah, and lastly, Paul Thomas, if you're listening, call us. We'd love to have oh you on the God, show. Oh, my God, this guy's Legend. unreal. I heard more about you off the air, and I really need to meet you. I think you need to come sit in the hot seat. Yeah, the wedding story, tough one to beat. That's so. awesome. I love it. Well, thanks to Brandel for coming on. But now we got to get to... The real serious part of the show. Yes. The gambling picks. You're on a little bit of a heater right now, Sleaze. I'll give you credit. I'm not cold. I'm not cold. Mm-hmm. I told you. I just need a little reset, a little 20-second timeout with my boys. I've been coaching them up, and we are getting results. Producer Mark, where do we stand after this last week? Well, after you had the winner in Bryson DeChambeau. Check. Uh, a top four in Adam Hadwin. Check. 
and a T12 in Ricky Fowler. Triple check. Those you would be now, your three best finishes ever in the history of golf. Yeah, they're right. It's though. the yeah. first one we've had since the first week when uh, Colt had Sung JM at the Honda. And, but that lead has been standing since then, and now, Drew, you've taken it. You are now up one point two million. What a swing dollars. from down two million. But for the up record, to defend myself, 2. since y'all made this bullshit rule change where whoever wins gets to pick, and you can't copy the the favorite pick. I had Bryson DeChambeau last week as well, and wasn't allowed to pick him. You copied since this me. ridiculous rule change. Well, I would have had Sungjae the week he won too, because I was you picking him every week. You didn't pick him. I would have picked him. That was before the rule Cheating change. Cheating overruled. Yeah, you got to get the T. Keep making, keep making. Well, you don't have Bryson to pick this week, so you'll probably. Have to I'm struggle. taking him anyways. And I'm by the way, you've already. I know who you're picking first, and it's the same guy I have too. So I have to change again. Yeah, well, you just got to get the T. Just make one tweet. You get the T off first. With that being said, I will go ahead and launch my first pick on Team Sleeves this week, and that will be Mr. Patrick Cantlay going off at 14 to one. I'm surprised that you said you were going to take this guy. I thought you would have for sure had Justin Thomas or John Rahm, but 14 to one, Patrick Cantlay. I think this is a second shot golf course. This dude never plays bad. I was looking back at it. He hasn't finished worse than 17th in his last five events. He seems to never play bad, and he's fifth in strokes grained approach. I like big boy courses for him, and this week is one. That's who I was going to go with. He's actually, in the last 10 years, he's first in scoring, first in birdies, first in pretty much every stroke gain category. His stats are unbelievable around here, and he has a win. Uh, so I really like him around this week. But unfortunately, since y'all make these rule changes, which is absolutely stupid because complaining. Sleaze was getting his dick kicked Everything in. was good until he started losing. Oh, no. We, we, we make this game, and then you get your dick kicked, and you're like, oh, this isn't fair. I, I want to pick the same guys. And so you change the rules. So I can't pick him. So I'm going to go with Justin Thomas, the tournament favorite, 11-1. to 1. Uh, Missed cut at Hartford. Took the week off last week. Should be rested. Normally when, when he misses cut, it really fires him up. Um, I did have an interesting phone call with him Saturday night, though. He didn't look like he was working too hard. Um, hmm. But I think he'll be ready to go around Muirfield Village this week. So I'll take Justin Thomas at 11-1. to 1. I the mean, betting favorite? Yeah, it could be worse. But Yeah, I didn't leave you with the scraps. No, but it's it's a ridiculous rule change, but that's the okay. topic for another well, day. Um, with the number two pick, anyone from 26-1 to 1 to 50-1, to 1, I'm going to go with a guy who backdoored him a little. He finished 12th last week. Had a very nice weekend, uh, coming off two straight missed cuts. Ricky Fowler's guy who's, who's played well here. He's just never finished it. I remember the one year he was in one of the last groups with Tiger Woods and had a really rough day. But he knows this place very well. He's he's twenty five. I think he's twenty eight to one. Sorry, twenty eight to one. I'm gonna go with Ricky Fowler. That's my number two pick. I like that pick a lot, and I will not complain because that was the guy that I had. I know how the rules work, and you have first rights to Ricky Fowler. And I wish you the best of luck. I'm going off the board here. Hasn't shown a lot of great form since the comeback. Missed the cut last week, which is rare, but I think he's another guy, like you mentioned with Justin Thomas. When he misses a cut, I think it fires him up. Patrick Reed, 33-1. to 1. He's 64th in strokes gained approach to the green. Not the best in the world. I just think he's a guy that he can win. He wins on big venues, and I think this is a place, being that it's jack spot and things like that, I, I like him. Eventually, he's going to start playing great golf because he does. That's what he does. So I'm going Patrick Reed, 33-1 to 1 for my middle tier. You would be team Reed. That's I'm cute. team winning. All right, third pick. This is our this is our dark horses. Anyone outside of fifty to one? Uh, my first guy I'm going to go with, Byung Un An, otherwise known as Ben On, sixty six to one, ball striking machine. Four top twenty fives around Muirfield Village. Lost in a playoff um, two years ago to Bryson DeChambeau, I believe, 
And uh, I like him to do big things this week. I love that pick, actually. Kudos to you, Colt, for picking on that, for picking up on that. And I will then audible into a guy also not showing great form. You're allowed right to now. pick the same guys in the outside of fifty to one. Oh, we are. Well, I'm not going to just out of principle, okay. even though he is right there on the sheet. I'm going to go with a guy you love who's not been playing very well of late. But I think part of that there was a little injury in the mix or a little tweak that he had. And I don't think the golf course that he's been playing suits what he does best, but that's Scotty Scheffler, 66 to one, big, long hitter, high ball hitter, big advantage at Muirfield. Uh, eventually, he's the same type of way, going to snap out of it at some point. And I think this is the type of course where he does it. All right, very interesting. And in the final pick, I'm going with one of the biggest hitters in the game. Showed up last week, Thursday morning, for a 210 tee time. The tour let him play after several negative tests. Uh, I'm going with a guy 70 to one. He's won twice on the PJ Tour, Cameron Champ. Big, big hitter smash big hit and cam on a big ballpark yeah did you like the fact that because that got a little bit of pushback that he tested positive yeah. and then multiple negative tests later they let him back i think it's good i mean i'm perfectly fine with it he he took he had four negative tests in 74 oh, he took yeah he had four negative tests he had no symptoms he's like this is ridiculous i think my first one was a false positive i have no symptoms took four tests over 72 hours everyone come back negative Let's go. Yeah. Couldn't Gotta agree, work. Couldn't agree more letting him back in. Some of those things come up false positive from what I've read. So good good that they let him back in. I'm going to the board with my last pick, guy that I've been high on all year since we came back. Speaking of ball striking machines, Corey Connors. He's 66 to 1, same as Scotty Scheffler. 18th in strokes gained approach this year. Uh, he's like top 20 in total driving. T to green, he's awesome. The putter's the only thing that really gives him an issue. But I think this is more of a ball striking emphasis golf course. I'll go back to the well. Mr. Corey Connors, the Canadian, you, for the you, last pick. You have a big man crush on Corey Connors, I've been able to figure out lately. I just rec real recognize real type of situation. I'm ball striking machine. He's ball striking machine. I respect it. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, to recap, I have Justin Thomas, Ricky Fowler, Ben On, Cameron Champ. Team Sleeves, Patrick Cantlay, Patrick Reed, Scotty Scheffler, Corey Connors. All right. Best of luck, everyone. We'll talk to you on next week's Golf Subpar. Subpar.